0: Chocolate. 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 Chocolate, chocolate. Hey chocolate lovers, and happy Valentine's Day. With this series of interviews recently, I've aimed to share with you some more unusual stories of people working in the chocolate industry. One such person is William Marks, also known as the force behind and the namesake of WM Chocolates. Some of you may have tried his chocolates, but if you're not based in the U.S., some of you may have never even heard of them. WM is a one-man chocolate company in Wisconsin, working hard to make ethically sourced chocolates at scale. And it's working. Over the last year, Will has slashed his prices almost in half, but kept the same quality I've grown accustomed to. We spoke at the start of the year about non-traditional sweeteners, choosing a new cacao origin, and pricing sweet spots. So without further ado, here's my interview with Will Marks. Tell me about yourself. Who are you and how did you get into craft chocolate?
1: Well, my name is, is Will, and my company's called WM Chocolate. I started making chocolate as a project that was really a continuation of things I was doing with other foods. So when I was about, I guess, 23, so getting to be eight years ago now, and I had my own apartment for the first time, I started doing a lot of reading and learning about food and figuring out what I thought was really the the best way to eat. And I mean that in a very broad sense, you know, things that taste good, but also are ethical in how they're sourced. So, and how they treat the people who produce them and how the the planet is affected by their production. And I found that a lot of what was available in the grocery stores was just not uh, up to the standards that I started developing. And so I was making a lot of food from scratch myself. And I was starting with things like bread and tortillas and some dairy products, things that are more like staples. I actually quit eating chocolate for a while because I just didn't really like what was available. I didn't know so much about craft chocolate at the time, but I still, um, for me, a lot of it was about the sugar, the sweetener, and even in specialty, most of it's still fairly processed sweetener. So I just kind of got off all that processed stuff and was doing my own thing. Eventually, I decided that I, I missed chocolate and I wanted to bring it back into my life. And so I started uh, applying some of my from scratch principles to chocolate and eventually kind of wound up doing the whole bean to bar thing just in my basement. And this was maybe six years ago. And the difference between chocolate and the other things I've been making, like bread and tortillas and cream cheese and all that, was that you know when I made the first batch, I thought, wow, this is actually really good. This is maybe the best chocolate I've ever had, which isn't to say that I was doing something special. It's just that I was careful and I was using really high quality ingredients that I you know hadn't really had access to before. And so because I felt so good about the product, I started sharing it around and then other people got interested in it and excited about it too. And it's really that other people factor that turned the chocolate pursuit into more of a business instead of just being a hobby. You know, baking bread, the stuff I was making was a little rustic. It wasn't necessarily the kind of stuff that I would want to share with other people. I was happy to eat it myself, but I wasn't like, oh, this is the best bread ever. Whereas with the chocolate, I really thought I I had something special. And so it was the excitement from other people and eventually the connections with other people that I made that helped me get it off the ground. And in particular, I was uh, was lucky to meet a, a chef in town who was very generous about letting me use some of their commercial kitchen space to start production. And I was kind of transitioning out of a job at the time, and it made sense to go full steam into the chocolate, and I had a kind of a low-risk, easy way to get started with that kitchen space, and things have just kind of gone from there. So that's a little bit of the backstory.
0: So I know that you use unrefined cane sugar right now, but you said you did a lot of experimentation. I mean, what other kinds of sweeteners did you try out in those initial stages?
1: Yes. In the very early days, when I was in my my kitchen playing around, I started with things like just mixing, say, um, some cacao powder, coconut oil, and honey. And that, you know, it works. You, you mix it all up, you kind of pour it into a mold or something and put it in the fridge, and it does make something that tastes chocolatey. You know, the, the downfall is that it doesn't taste that good. It, it just kind of pushes the chocolate button. And for someone who hadn't had a lot of chocolate in a while and has generally enjoyed it, it was nice for me to have something chocolate. As far as other sweeteners, you know, honey doesn't work that well for doing bars. It's more for those kind of uh, experiments like I just mentioned. Uh, I could use like maple sugar or something. I never really got into that too much. I just really like the unrefined cane sugar flavor with cacao so much. I think it's uh, just a really nice combination where when you get into those other sugars, like the coconut and the maple, they have so much of this kind of different flavor angle of their own that they bring to it. I feel that it it makes it something where you're not really tasting that kind of basic chocolate flavor as much anymore. So I really have stuck with the cane sugar.
0: And where do you source your cane sugar from?
1: Right now, what I'm buying from is a company called Just Panella. And they're in Colombia, so they, they do the cane growing and processing into the sugar in Colombia. And then um, they import it into the U.S. for me, and I take it from there. So it's something people can buy. Like, it's even available in retail quantities on Amazon. Again, it's called Just Panela. And panela is a is just a name for unrefined cane sugar.
0: Yeah, have you ever had the chance to see how panela is made at the source?
1: I haven't been able to go, no. Uh, you, you probably have, Max.
0: Uh, I I did in Ecuador, but I've never been to Colombia.
1: Okay. I mean, I've seen videos. It looks cool. I've heard people like drinking the fresh cane juice, you know. Uh, (laughs) My parents went to Cuba a few years ago, and they got to do that with the fresh cane juice. And it looks and sounds really delicious, but I've only been able to see videos. One of the challenges of doing the business, of course, is, I mean, I haven't really traveled since I started. I've been kind of here working on the business, and, um, you know, it's probably as I'll talk about later, it's not like the kind of thing where, you know, you start a chocolate business and all of a sudden you're a millionaire. That that just doesn't work. So between that reality and the amount of time it takes to kind of uh, get things off the ground and figure things out, it, it just hasn't been conducive to a lot of travel. And of course, now we're in a time where traveling is really difficult too. So I hope that's part of the future, but it hasn't been part of the past so much yet.
0: So what made you decide on that particular source of unrefined cane sugar? Because I know, like, my mom grew up in Louisiana, and there's a ton of cane grass down there, and she grew up drinking fresh cane juice. So there is still a lot of sugar being made in the south of the U.S. Why just vanilla?
1: Well, I like it because, you know, unfortunately, as far as I know, and if someone knows and I'm wrong, tell me, uh, the stuff that they're growing in the U.S., like in Louisiana, ultimately becomes a lot more processed than what I want to use. So even though they are growing cane there, and if you went there, you could have cane juice. I mean, the the product that is deliverable to me is significantly processed compared to what you can get from Colombia or some of these other countries that are more traditional cane-growing countries and have a tradition of eating a less processed sugar. So basically, like I like to get some from the U.S., but they just don't really make this unprocessed style of cane sugar here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I could totally see that. I I don't think I've ever seen a sugarcane refining processing station area, anything like that, anywhere in the U.S. But when I was in Ecuador, they basically took all the cane juice and they put it in this giant pot. Like, people could bathe in it. It's just absolutely Mm -hmm. huge. And they just have fire under it, and they're just boiling off all the water until you're left with whatever's left and it's just kind of chunky it's a little moist but that's exactly what it is what it is there's no other refining done to it
1: that's right and certainly in the u.s we have you know the the plants that do a much more processed version Uh, but again that's not really what i'm looking for i think you know a lot of a lot of people maybe think that it's uh well it's like it's still a sugar, it's still a sweetener, it's still potentially bad for you and I think there is this nutritional component where you know I don't want to play doctor and tell people that somehow if they switch to this sugar, they're going to be healthier. but I think what you see when you've seen how they you know when they are concentrating this boiling it down, all that color, all that richness i mean it's not just about having some kind of nutrition left potentially it's about also all that flavor, and when you take a product that's you know typically a 70% dark chocolate bar is really common and that means 30% of that is going to be your sweetener and if 30% of that doesn't really have flavor besides just sweet you're losing a lot of opportunity so i think it's really a big opportunity to use a less processed sugar to make sure that that big chunk of the product is actually flavorful and it's it's a bit of a secret ingredient for me where i think you know people think oh why, why do i like this and it's like well uh, you know, you don't seem to understand the sugar I'm using, but it is like a secret that makes this taste better. Like it tastes really good with sea salt and that part has always been popular. And people are always like, oh, why does this taste so good? And I talk about the sugar and they're still like, why does this taste so good? And I'm like, well, <laughs> the sugar is a part of it. So let's give some credit to the sugar, even if we don't necessarily appreciate it in full. I think just because we haven't, you know, most people in America just haven't really seen it. They don't know what it is.
0: Yeah, you, I mean, you've got me wondering how people were sweetening their chocolate like two or three hundred years ago when the Spanish were receiving pieces of, of chocolate, of like cacao that they turned into drinks if they were also receiving little packets of panela along with it. Because I mean, I know sugar used to also be a very high value item.
1: That's right. I think there's an interesting history there to be investigated. You know, I've done a little bit of reading and research on it and it turns out there's been some amount of let's say, refining or processing of sugar for a long, long time, and people who are wealthier were able to access more like what we would call white sugar or something that looks a little bit more like white sugar for probably at least the past thousand years. But certainly for, you know, uh, for most people having anything as a sweetener at all was kind of a luxury and it was going to be more and more rustic as you kind of came down out of the elite classes into something that probably looked more like You know what, what I'm using now. It's funny how those things go where what once was something that, you know, the wealthy desired sort of flips around and becomes something that was out of favor and back in favor again. So, but a lot of it now is just if you grew up in a country where they make this style of sugar, then you've heard of it and you know what it is. And you see my stuff and you're like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. But if I, you know, have it in front of an audience of people who grew up in the US or generally in Western countries where they don't grow cane, they just, are like, oh, it's cane sugar. I'm like, no, not really. It is from cane sugar. It's it's sugar cane, but it's not really the same thing. So there's a real education challenge, and I've kind of learned that um, it's it's really fun to talk about it, and I'm glad we're spending some time on it right now in the podcast because we have time to go in a little more depth. But Mm -hmm. by and large, it hasn't been a real strong selling point just because there's so much lack of understanding about it. Well,
0: because I think people still see cane sugar on the label and yes it, you could kind of go into the idea of superfoods with it not in saying that cane sugars are superfood but in saying that a lot of people get really into the concept of superfoods and cacao or acai or moringa or whatever but the amount of nutrients you're actually getting from these quote-unquote superfoods is very small kind of similar to the amount of nutrients that you would get from cane sugar. You're not supposed to eat enough that you're getting your daily value of iron or calcium from your cane sugar, but it's just these trace minerals that can add a little extra to your body when you might need it while you're also eating something that's delicious and otherwise generally pretty good for you.
1: Yes, that's right. You know, and some of these trace minerals, they're involved in the metabolic processes that use the sugar itself. So it's important to think if you have those trace minerals when you're burning the sugars, you know, they're there to support what your body is doing. And if you don't have them, then you go into this deficit thing. And I think that's what's kind of important about the sugar from a nutritional standpoint, if you will. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, presenting it more as a superfood would be probably the, the best way to, to go with it. Or I think if you don't do that, you just kind of tuck it in there and say, you know what, Uh, this is what I believe in. I'm going to put it in there. I'm going to use this product as a vehicle for it. But we're going to sell it based on other things like it tastes good and people can access it, you know, reasonably easily and all that kind of stuff. So that's always been a struggle for me to really decide how much to push that to the front. I think for now I'm content to say it's in there. And it's kind of a secret ingredient. And for those who want to know more about it, I'm here for you. But, uh, you know, I really am going to be trading on the quality of the chocolate itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think sweeteners in general, cane sugar especially, are still being pretty vilified in the press. We've realized that too much sugar or sweetener is bad for us. And it's still in that sort of limbo of maybe there are better options, but right now all sugar is bad alternative sugars are good, but honey is being put on a pedestal for some reason. I mean, there are definitely better sources of sugar, but in the end everything in moderation.
1: Yes, and I still believe in offering something that is delicious without having to use so much sweetener. I think that's really important. I think that's probably the greatest strength of specialty of craft chocolate in terms of the mass appeal is that we can make something that tastes good. And it can still be 70 or even in some cases 85 or higher percent dark and it still tastes good. That's really amazing. I think if we focus on offering that to people and maybe let the the sugar is evil, sugar is not evil debate go aside a little bit, you know, we'll make more more headway. And, and things are always very black and white, even when they're not. It's very hard to offer a more subtle presentation of sweeteners to, to people, or at least in a way that kind of works at a marketing level. So... Um, you know, it's tricky. And I know some of the, the companies that have tried to push this type of sugar at, in retail packaging for people just to buy and use. And it's always been really a slog. I mean, they, they've not really made a lot of progress. And in the end, have had to turn more to kind of industrial purchases, people like me who want to buy it and use it as an ingredient. And, you know, maybe that's just where we're at right now. And that's that's okay.
0: So after all of this experimentation and everything you've done over the last eight years or so to understand more about what's going into your body, what would you say inspires your current philosophy towards creation and food?
1: Well, I want to keep going with what I came to understand and believe, you know, really in those early days. And I think uh, with, with chocolate, one of the interesting challenges for me has been I almost feel that I was distracted for a long time by this fascination with the different cacaos, the different producers, different origins, different fermentation drying and roasting and all of, those, all of those things that you know you can do to affect the taste of the, the finished bar. And there are just so many variables there. And most people have you know no idea that all these variables are there and can be altered to change the flavor. And when you learn about that, It's really fascinating and you can get really deep in that that rabbit hole, you know. And so now looking back on it, I feel that maybe for the first, say, oh, you know, maybe three, four years of my business, I was a little too caught up in that whole single origin, uh, small producer, really unique flavor profile thing, which is really cool and it's really exciting. But from a business standpoint and the effect that it has on the world and on um, you know what what chocolate buyers are uh, able to get behind and put their money behind and into it. It's very very small, and you know broadly speaking, as a as kind of my personal food philosophy, I was much more focused on how do we have this kind of magical intersection of food that is as sustainable as possible, that is uh, really flavorful and is also somewhat affordable i mean i th- I think there's no denying that you know higher quality food is going to cost more but but how much more and it's always been in my, my personal life i've always been willing to pay more for better food but only to a point and i've always felt that there are certain synergies that aren't always realized like for example local food should cost less because it doesn't have to travel as far and there's all these things that should be true of it. But oftentimes, it's the exact opposite. It costs more. Um, It's harder to access. It's not in the grocery store. So all those problems have always really bothered me. And I think that just, you know, in my personal life, I was always trying to find solutions for that and figure out who to buy from just to feed myself and my, my friends and family. But in the business, I was really caught up in this kind of, you know, single origin specialty cacao thing and lost some sight of the bigger problems, which are how do we you know, make this industry more fair, more sustainable, while also making sure we don't just knock the prices into the stratosphere. Because you can make this so-called perfect product, but if no one can, can afford it, or so few people can afford it that it doesn't really go anywhere, then eh, you know, the impact is very limited. So in the last year, year and a half, as I had watched enough consumers interact with my my products, I started to really realize, okay, you know I need to take this philosophy that I use in my day to day for my own table and try to roll it out in a stronger way to my my products and If I do that, not only will I make something I think is more valuable, but I'll also be more kind of at peace with what I'm doing, and I'll be able to put more energy into it and so that's been a big change in the last year and a half, and I'm really just at the the start of moving forward in that Direction where I'm trying to realize more of the synergies, sourcing from closer to home, altering the capital structure, doing more of the production closer to origin or at origin, bringing the prices down so more consumers here can access what I'm doing. You know, that's all really important stuff, and that's I see that as a future.
0: So, a lot of makers make it pretty clear that the single origin bars they're working with are a starting point, that they're more open to expanding into other things and experimentation and i think that's definitely one type of approach to craft chocolate making but you've put a lot more controls on what you're willing to produce in pursuit of this philosophy for the most part so how did you choose what sorts of controls to put on your chocolate like only dark uh, soy-free gluten-free regionally sourced cacao what what made you choose those particular things
1: You're right. There are many controls and and the controls make things a little bit challenging, you know, because you can't just do whatever someone asks you to do. And, uh, you know, you feel like sometimes your hands are a little bit tied, but I think the controls are important because there are a few things about it that are important. So one is it it ensures that in the end, I am responsible for the products. And at this point, I actually personally still make just about everything. So I want to make sure that I'm making something that I want and that I believe in. And I see my business is really a compromise between what I want to make and what I want to eat and have available and what consumers also want to eat and have available. So there's just this looking for this overlap. I'm not really interested in, you know, making milk chocolates. I mean, they can be perfectly delicious, but I'm just not that interested in. So I'm not going to do it. I'm not really that interested in doing tons of inclusion things. I'll do a little bit, but it's not really like a big thing for me. I'm more of a high-quality basics type of person. I want a really high-quality basic chocolate bar. And so I'll focus on doing that instead of coming up with some really, you know, crazy combination of things, which, by the way, I've tried in the past. And I found that, you know, you're sort of stuck in the same set of problems. It doesn't just magically fix your business or make things sell like crazy because you've come up with a you know, a, a, a dried sweet corn and ancho chili powder bar, which is an example of something I did that, you know, it was a really cool bar, but it wasn't like, oh, now, you know, now I'm selling a million bars a year or something. <laughs> so I've kind of learned that it's it's better if I focus on things that are a match of what I care about and what the world would also buy and not get too caught up in chasing like a trend or chasing something that I don't really care about that much because I have to live with this and have it around. So it's that match I'm looking for. I also just think that um, people have really busy lives, and we often, as a person who's making chocolate, for example, uh, we we think that chocolate is so important, and if we make this new bar, it's going to be such a big deal. And there's a, a really... So I, I always like music analogies because I'm a big music fan. I feel like music is really... I don't do music, I can't do music, but I listen to a ton of music, and it's just so important to me and kind of keeps me sane in a way. Uh, but I remember a quote from an interview with a musician I really like who who said that, you know, they spent all this time working on this, this music and they think it's going to be revolutionary. They release the album and basically nobody really cares because for most people it's just music. It's not like some for the people who made it, it's this big thing. It's this big deal. They think they're doing something really new and different and magical. But for most people, it's just music. And and for chocolate, it's the same. For most people, it's, it's just chocolate. So I think we have to remember that, you know, uh, people have busy, complicated lives. And simplicity is a good thing. And so if I can offer them a product where they don't have to worry about all these things, like if they're not paying a lot of attention and they give it to their son's friend who's allergic to peanuts or something, I just want them to not have to worry about it, you know, because I just don't have that stuff around. Or, but that's what the allergies come into play. It's just a simplicity thing. People don't have to worry about it. I want people to say, oh, it's WM. I can trust this guy because he just doesn't mess with all that stuff. It's just safe. I don't have to worry. You know, I think that's really a valuable thing in a complicated world.
0: I really like the music metaphor. I think that that's very valid because for these smaller artists, which have proliferated these days, just like small chocolate makers, for some people, their music is everything. Their music is so relatable. And when you hear it, just like some for some people, when they taste chocolate from a specific maker, it just resonates with them. It just brings so much joy. I think that's really important for people like that to continue being able to make that music or make their chocolate.
1: Well, I think you're right. But I also, but the flip side, of course, is that for most people, there are those people where it really resonates. But for most people, it's just chocolate. And I, we don't want to leave them behind too much either because it's those most people that, you know, if we're looking at this as a way to maybe affect change in an industry, we do have to pay attention to the most people, at least to some respect. You know, there's so much variety of perspective in the specialty chocolate industry that I think it's totally fine if one if one maker wants to do something really kind of specific and dialed in and, and them, that's okay. But I think there's also room for other makers to do stuff that's maybe a little bit more, more broad and accessible and approachable too. And that's, that's more where I see myself going forward.
0: I do think, though, that's where the metaphor with the music kind of ends because, yeah, for most people it is just chocolate. But for most people for whom it's just chocolate, it's still also, holy crap, this chocolate's really good it's still just chocolate for yeah. them in their mind but they're like oh yeah this is really good i enjoy this and they kind of forget about it but then when they're thinking about wanting right. good chocolate again your stuff comes to mind or the other craft chocolate bars they've come they've thought of and tried they come to mind
1: yeah it, it it's a you know these metaphors can be kind of stretched out <laughs> and 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 distorted as much as we want them to you know you could say are you making a pop song or are you making something that's a little bit more, uh, you know, indie? And I think that, uh, look, people who appreciate a good pop song, there's nothing wrong with those people. They are, you know, just experiencing music in a a different way than people who might look for some kind of more weird and unique thing. Uh, you know, I, I just feel like a pop song is actually a, a really hard thing to come up with and it's not to be taken for granted. And so, you know, I think, it, and more and more as I think about what I'm doing with my bars, sometimes I look at them or I taste them, I think, yep, you know, okay, there it is, whatever. It's pretty simple. And then I think about all the thought that has been put into it to make it just be, as you said, just a really good bar of chocolate. And there's just so much that has, there's years of experience and of, of kind of thinking and watching people and seeing what they reacted to and what they didn't react to. And there's a, a lot that goes into this, even just to make something that, Seems very simple, and in the end, what you want is people to say, "Oh, it's just a really good chocolate bar," and they don't need to know all the <laughs> all the difficulty that went into making that
0: possible. What people forget about pop music is that it's just popular music. It pop just stands for right. popular, it, and it changes every decade.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly, and I'm sure you know. Same same is true for food, and I think things move. At a similar pace, though, it takes decades for taste to change. I think we're fortunate now to be in a, a time where people do value high percentage chocolate. They value dark chocolate. It's, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it's probably going to be harder to be doing something like what I'm trying to do. And And so there's an element where you have to kind of go with the current, go with the flow a little bit more. And that's OK. But, uh, you also have to keep your eye on what are things gonna be like in ten years or twenty years? where are things going and fortunately it's a it's a slow enough timeline. Tastes don't change that fast that it's a little bit merciful for us who are trying to make stuff because you don't have to try to change on a dime know
0: I know over the course of twenty twenty you made a few changes a few few big changes to your business model. But I mean, even with the monthly blog updates, I'm still not that familiar with the exact changes. But uh it said in one of your yeah. one of your info pages that you do more of the chocolate making process at origin now. So could you expand on that? What does that mean?
1: That's right. And that's another case of, you know, with the like the monthly updates. I didn't want to go too much into the weeds right away and like get into all these little details because I think again Most people are primarily there for a good chocolate bar made by someone who they generally trust and think would do a good job. And uh, so a little more detail for us in the podcast is definitely appropriate. And that's why these formats are nice to be able to give an extended perspective. So what I did last year is uh, it was kind of a last minute change. I had been planning on making some adjustments to my sourcing so that I would switch to really just sourcing from, say, like one, one cacao producer. And by doing that, I could cut down on a lot of the complexity of my, my business and therefore um, be able to offer lower prices. I think what a lot of people don't realize is when you do these different origin bars, in order to make it really uh, a profitable business, you have to bring in quite a bit of cacao. So even if it's relatively expensive cacao, let's say you're doing five, six, seven different origins, which I used to do, you're having to bring in, you know, maybe 500 to a thousand pounds of all those things. So having all those and then you multiply that by five, six, seven different origins. So all of a sudden you've got to bring in, you know, a couple thousand pounds, like potentially on one go to get things off to the start. And that's that's just a lot of cash to put out. So if you can switch down to just sourcing from one producer and you can either um, break those purchases up into smaller bits so that you don't have as much of a cash flow problem or you can consolidate into one big order which is always cheaper. And and it's not always cheaper just because you get like a bulk discount. Sometimes that's true, but it's just logistically, you only have one shipment. Basically with, with freight, you know, you're paying about the same amount, whether you put uh, one cocoa bean on a pallet or, you know, a million cocoa beans on a pallet. It's kind of like a plane ticket. It costs about the same. So I thought, well, let me just be more efficient. I'll streamline fewer producers closer to home. Then what happened is, I ended up having a kind of an interesting conversation with somebody in the industry about how this whole thing worked in a big picture way and started thinking, well, you know, um, does it really make sense to buy cacao? It's, you know, I know that seems like a maybe a sacrilegious thing to say on your podcast, but what seemed to be clear to me was that, you know, if, if you're trying to make chocolate, you don't really need to just buy cacao. It, you you are trying to get for me. I need to get involved at the point before the sweetener is added, right? Because I'm trying to use this different unrefined cane sugar, but I don't necessarily need to start from the bean. And if you think about the industry as a whole, one of the big problems is most of the money is made in the places that do everything that comes after making the bean. And so if we're thinking about inequality, we're thinking about how to get more money to origin then we should think about more than just paying more for cocoa beans. We should allow more of the process to happen closer to origin or at origin when it makes sense. Because, you know, there's just a lot of money flows to that. You need equipment, you need intellectual property, you need all these things in order to do more of the process at origin. And that stays in the origin economies. So then I thought, well, can I find somebody who's doing a really good job of growing the beans, fermenting and drying? But then also, you know, can they go ahead and get started with roasting, taking the shells off, um, putting it into some kind of more efficient unit that I can then take, add the sugar to, finish grinding, and all that. And so that's kind of what ended up happening. I ended up finding someone in the Dominican Republic who was doing a really great job with that. And uh, and the beauty of it too is that, in addition to keeping more of the value at origin, you cut down on waste. So when I'm getting a shipment. There is no waste. I'm not getting husk material shipped to me. That's a big waste. You know, husk is 20 to 30 percent by weight of the beans. And so when you're putting that on a container, you know, and, and shipping that, you have to pay for that waste. That waste is generating carbon emissions. That waste is just a bad thing. I don't want it, you know, and so getting rid of that was a big deal. Um, it's It's just more contained and cleaner and safer for shipping. So I just felt that it was this whole kind of magic you know a series of good things that happen the catch is you give up some control you need to have a partner that you trust but if you have that you know then then you have a good situation for you and so that was really what the big change was this past year
0: yeah I mean I'm I know that see it's kind of hard to explain that I understand what you mean because it's been vilified for a long time using (laughs) cocoa liquor or or chocolate liquor to make your chocolate and still call it fine chocolate but I mean yes but if it's fine liquor you
1: know that's the whole thing it depends on the quality of those ingredients and yes it's true that a lot of that stuff is not very good you know a lot of the if you just go to like uh, you know Big, big com and order, you know, a pallet of liquor, which you can't do, but just hypothetically, yeah, it might not be very good. But yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of bad stuff out there. And the whole thing is just because the majority of what has come before has been low quality doesn't say anything about what's possible. So a lot of this is just about opening up your mind and saying, okay, I used to think that doing it this way meant the product was going to suck. and It just couldn't be possible to do it well this way. But the, the key is, do you have a partner who can do high quality stuff for you? And if you can, then forget about all that other stuff because you have, you know, a precursor to your fine chocolate there. It's it's all about, you know, it's it's about ego, too. I don't have to touch everything. It's like just, you know, unless my hands roast this, it can't possibly be good. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, the people who are doing this probably are doing even better than I can because they're closer to it all the way through. That's the other thing about having more done at Origin is people who are closer to it all the way through just have a better sense of, you know, what's the character of this cacao? You know, how do we ferment and dry? What's the best way to roast it? And, of course, I took samples. I vetted everything, made sure that it was good before I bought anything. I mean, I'm not just going to go buy a whole bunch of it and cross my fingers. And so I was just really kind of blown away by the quality. I thought, you know, I was skeptical at first too. I thought it was going to be more like this big chocolate thing, just kind of flat. But I thought, I'm, you know, I'm really impressed. And I don't get impressed that easily. So I was like, yeah, we're definitely doing it this way. This just makes so much more sense. And now that I've got someone who can do it and do it at a, at a fine chocolate quality level, whatever that means, you know, you kind of know it when you mm-hmm. taste it, is uh, is amazing. And so it just... I would love to see this model spread more, too, because, again, it's getting more capital to the origin countries. I mean, I wouldn't really be. I'm not in favor of, say, grow the cacao in Dominican Republic, ship it to Amsterdam, and then they process it and send it to me. That's not the idea. The idea is grow it in Dominican Republic, process it in Dominican Republic to a point where I want to intervene and then I'll pick it up there.
0: Well, I think if you were trying to do this model like five years ago, it would have received more vilification publicly, but it also just would have been much more difficult. But I've seen in the past few years, I mean, if you go on like meridiancacao.com and you look for cocoa butter or uh, cocoa powder, I think Esmeralda's cacao and um, cocoa camellia are both doing rather large scale pressing of these value-added products, these cocoa products that, as you said, are usually pressed and processed in Amsterdam or in London or somewhere else that's very far from the source. But I think these days there is more equipment at origin and there's more openness to this idea. But I think it's still, it takes a fair amount of like back and forth and training from someone who's outside of all of this. So, I mean, what kind of feedback loop do you have with the producers in the DR?
1: Yeah, that's, that's all a good point. You know, I think you're right. Five, six years ago when I was getting started, I don't think I could have done this just because I didn't have I mean, I didn't know who to even ask. I don't know if there would have been anyone in place who could do it. So, uh, so yes, that's, that's fair. Things have evolved. And I I would say, I mean, within that, within this tiny little specialty world, vilified, sure, but most people don't give a shit whatsoever. I mean, you know, about if it's like your average consumer doesn't even understand what's going on, they don't even know what a cocoa bean is. So they, they really don't care. Um, but, but I think as as far as the feedback loop and that kind of process, it's interesting because, so, I mean, I'm still quite small. And when you're really small, you you usually have a harder time affecting control. So the, the people that I work with, I know that if I were a little larger, I could really tell them like, oh, I want you to roast it just this way. Or even I want you, you to ferment and dry it just this way. I'm a little too small to pull that off because, you know, they they kind of need to work in certain minimums and it's not like a full container or anything like that. So my feedback loop is pretty much like, show me what you got that you're making that's, um, they, they have a bunch of different fermentation and drying styles. And so I have this like small menu of say like five to eight different styles I can, can work with and choose from. And so it's really kind of up to me to just go through those, try them out, take samples, try them out and figure out what I want to do with them. And like in, in the present case and for the foreseeable future, I'm actually doing some blending. So even though it's from the same, it's the same country, same producer, broadly speaking, but I'm blending some different um, farms and fermentation styles. So the feedback loop is somewhat internal. Like, I'm making sure overall is the quality there. Yes, it is. I tell them that, you know, you're doing a good job. Thanks, I love your stuff. And this is the, you know, proportion of things I want so I can achieve the flavor profile I want based on, you know, whatever experiences I've had what I'm going for. And then in the future, I think the exciting thing is in the future, okay, you try to grow this thing. And then you can say, all right, well, now that I need a little bit more stuff, let's talk about how to maybe create a certain... Element in this flavor profile, or let's let's really optimize for exactly what I'm going for, so I don't have to blend so much. But maybe you know, you kind of um, tailor the, the production process towards the profile I want.
0: Yes, this reminds me a bit of a project I was working on a, a while ago, in which I was researching a lot of cacao origins and cacao brands, and I was reading about this place in uh, Tamana, Trinidad, or somewhere right around Tamana, where they had a central fermentary, and they had a lot of these very old cocoa estates, like 100, 200 years old with with some very old trees where they had a central fermentary and they had maybe six or seven of these estates all using the same fermentary and they just used it intermittently, like once every week, once every two weeks, whenever they needed it. And instead of each farmer having to figure out how to get this, not super advanced, but more advanced than they would need for their relatively small amount of cacao equipment, they can just all use this sort of communal equipment. So I'm wondering if maybe 10 yeah. years from now, we'll see a lot more people with uh, the centralized fermentary, but then also centralized processing so that they can still have their own control over their own fermentation and their own processing and just be able to sell individually to smaller makers like you, and you can buy their whole lot, for example.
1: Right. I think that would be great. And I, you know, I think it's also, um, The fermentation and drying stuff is kind of that maybe has been a big advance of the last 10, 20 years is having more of that set up like you described where you can have uh, more control at those stages. You can have some sharing there so that multiple farmers can have the infrastructure to do a a good job and a deliberate job of, of, you know, the process tailoring things to what they want and what makers want. But then there's this extra step, too, where I think, you know, let's capture a little more value at origin do a little more of the process, maybe get rid of some of those shells, do some of these things that just don't really make sense to, you know, ship and then do somewhere else. Uh, But it does require that, that capital at origin, you know, the machines at origin to do it. Um, So, you know, the, the question is kind of how to get that financed and how to build those models. But I think part of it is um, some of it is, look, it's, it's almost like an enlightened outsourcing, right? So yes, it's cheaper to do some of these things in the producing countries. I mean, it does lower my cost to do some of these things in the Dominican Republic. But it's also uh, a positive for the economies of these countries. So it's not just like, oh, I just want to cut the prices, so I'm going to outsource. It's not really like that. It's like, uh, yeah, I want to make this product more reasonably priced, and I want to have it be a smarter product, and I also want to contribute to the origin economy. So having it done there is just a smart thing to do versus like, oh, this is just a cunning business move. So I hope we do see more of that.
0: Well, you've also passed on those lowered prices to consumers over the course of the last year. You've been lowering your prices, which is (laughs) incredibly unusual, to say the least.
1: Yes, that's right. And, you know, that really comes from observing consumers here and seeing what they're willing to go for. I can't tell you how many times I give people a sample of my chocolate and they obviously loved it. But then I kind of watch them and see what comes next. And I could just see that internal struggle. I love this chocolate, but uh, $8, I I just can't really do it. And I know there are different consumers everywhere. People on the coast might be different than people in Wisconsin where I am. But I went to the coast and did some things there, too, and it was kind of the same story. So I think that there's just a big reality check industry needs to have. Say, look, you know, when you talk about all these analog industries like coffee or craft beer, that comparison those they they come up all the time but if you look at something like coffee or craft beer we're talking about taking something like you know if you go to starbucks and get a really cheap cup of coffee or get something at like mcdonald's or dunkin donuts you might spend like you know two two dollars two fifty three dollars i don't know and so if you go to a really nice coffee shop get a specialty cup you might be spending double or if you go like to a bar and get a, a really like mass-produced beer like a you know miller High Life or something and you spend like three dollars, three fifty on a bottle, you could get a craft brew for five or six. So we're looking at maybe a doubling. You know, with chocolate, if you look at going to a grocery store getting maybe a an organic dark chocolate bar with not a lot of weird stuff in it, spending two fifty, maybe three. So we could double. That gets us to five, five, six. It doesn't get us to eight, nine, ten, 11, 12, 20 You know, so I just think there's this kind of disconnect. Like we need to uh expect people might double for something way better asking them to triple, quadruple, quintuple, I don't know that that's fair to ask them. And so I started trying to figure out, instead of taking it from this point of trying to tell consumers, you're wrong, this has to cost $8, this has to cost $12, because if it doesn't, you know, there's slavery and child labor and all this stuff and you're part of the problem, I've tried to say, wait, 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 step back. You know, let me just accept you as you are right now and see what I can do for you. Can I make my vision Exist at a price that you're willing to buy into. And, you know, at at first it's kind of hard because you have to drop all this conditioning that you have from from your peers and from the the specialty industry. But, you know, you drop it and you kind of get creative and think, what can I do that doesn't change the big vision? It keeps all these goals in place of sustainability, getting more money to origin, having great flavor, all those things. What can I do to bring the price down? you know, with, without touching that. And so this style of production I mentioned helps a lot. Changing some of the packaging helps a lot. Generally speaking, bringing everything closer to home, if it's done in a smart and careful way, helps a lot. And the, the goal is, is not to make me more money. I'm not going to still charge $10 and just make that extra $5. I need to bring the price down to bring more people into the game. You know, it's about bringing more consumers and making it more accessible make it more approachable. I really think that's super important. I think, you know, instead of all of us specialty producers, we work with five, six, seven different, you know, origins, and we're all working with those same five to seven different origins. Well, that just doesn't seem very smart. If we each had one or two that we focused on working with, we could all have cheaper products because it's just a cheaper way to work. We could bring more people in. And ultimately, all those different produ- producers will be better served too, because they're getting more volume out of us. You know, you can do everything perfectly, but if you're not selling very much, it just doesn't have that much of an impact.
0: So you have changed your lineup of origins over the last year, also just shifted a little bit. You got rid of a couple of origins, and you added in, I think, the DR. You got rid of- Two or three origins.
1: Yes. Uh, so ultimately, it's going to be DR only. Really. Yeah. So ultimately, what I'm trying to do is—is.
0: Is sorry. I'm just. I'm. I'm in love with many of your bars, but in particular, the Belize bar. You're. You're not going to be making it anymore.
1: No, it's it's gone. It's gone. It's gone. It, it's. Uh, you know. Yes, I love that bar, but I tell you what. The thing about it is, like, the sixty-eight percent Belize. Is that the one you're thinking of, or? yes <laughs> yeah I mean it's a great it's a great bar but but it appealed to a certain certain type of of chocolate consumer who's I've found generally more experienced um, it's generally a bar that people find interesting, but they don't eat often or really? often enough to, to keep it something that I could really make money making and so it's I think of like the future of you know, where I'm, where I'm going, what I'm going to have, it's going to be a very small lineup for some time. I'm only going to have DR. I'm only going to have four bars. It's really kind of a greatest hits attempt. I'm trying to, you know, returning to our music thing. It's, I'm trying to take all the, the most successful products from the last five, six years and create, you know, a version of them using the sourcing I'm using now. And, uh, be able to offer basically the best of what I can do at a price that more people can can buy into. And so some things like the Belize bar, um, you know, it, it's an interesting case study. So there's a few things that were problematic about it from a commercial standpoint. I mean, critically, people didn't, you know, they tended to like it. it was successful from a critical standpoint, but from a commercial standpoint, not so much. And just having it be a 68% dark, a lot of people have read these articles that say, uh, you know, so you want to look for 70% or above for a maximum health benefits. So I had a hard time selling a 68. I mean, it's only 2% different, but it didn't matter. People didn't see the 70. They're like, uh, I don't know. I'll get the other one. That's the 70. Um, then there's the, the flavor profile was a little fruitier. A lot of people found that super interesting, but then they didn't buy it. They say, oh, that's really interesting. I'll take a Ghana. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, like a Ghana 75% more deep, more chocolatey. Above seventy percent, so the Belize was kind of, I don't know. I mean, it had its it had its following, it had its fans, and I, I'm really grateful for the people who enjoyed it and supported it. But it it just was a little bit too, uh, you know, outside of of the norm for flavor profile for most people in that sixty eight percent number. If I were to keep it around, I'd just figure out a way to make it be a seventy. I think it would just automatically sell better then.
0: I mean, so what are those three or four products that you're talking about that are going to be in the lineup for the foreseeable future and are any of them more bulk products like uh, chocolate chips or something like that?
1: Oh, sure. So for now it's just going to be bars, you know, uh, the, the bulk stuff occasionally that's a for me, a special request item. So I generally do have bulk available for people who just want to ask me, can I buy some like just in a, you know, a block or chunks? I'll say, okay, sure. And it's very informal. I don't sell it in a packaged version because doing like the chocolate chips or those kind of formed things are actually a lot harder than making bars. It takes more equipment, and I just don't really want to buy that stuff right now. So um it's just going to be bars unless people have special requests for for like folk stuff. So I'm going to have a 70% plain. That's the so-called classic dark. I have a sea salt version of that, which is the so-called dark and salt. I have a coffee version of that, dark and coffee. Then I'm going to do an extra dark, which would be an 85%, also Dominican origin, uh, and that will be that will be it. That'll be the four, and then we'll kind of see. You know, what I'm working on really hard for this year is let's get these greatest hits products into some more stores. Let's get them into some stores that have a little more traffic. You know, think about it more like instead of being at a really boutique, specialty cheese shop or something like that. Yes, I still want to be there, but I also need to be in a few places that are where people shop more often, places like uh, co-ops, things like that. So I need to get in some of those higher traffic stores, get those sales up a little bit more. And then you start to think about, okay, it's the holidays. Maybe I want to add a seasonal bar. Maybe you want to bring back the chili bar for you know the holidays, or I want to bring back a mint bar or an orange bar for the holidays or something like that. But not really relying on it to be a big driver of sales. you know. And then I think as you evolve past that, like bulk has an appeal. But I think doing it in a way that's you know chocolate chips or some nice package thing that is uh it's a it's a little different chunk of the the market and there's a lot of competition there and it's just the machines to do that like the chips and all that stuff it it's uh it's expensive it's actually more complicated than bars like I said so i'm I'm content to just have it be kind of like a hidden item thing people ask they can have it you know
0: Yeah. I mean, and speaking of getting your products into stores, I mean, what is the product, what has the process been like to get your bars into stores now that you've reformatted the business model? And I mean, what is your desire? Do you look for more retail shops or fewer? Are you trying to get bars more direct to consumer or just as many people as possible?
1: Big question. Good question. So, you know, it's, I was I'll preface it by saying in general for the past like five years or so, getting bars into stores has been extremely difficult. I've had some success with specialty stores, uh, you know, for the most part specialty stores and certainly anything that was a little bit more mainstream, like uh, you know, even like say like your local equivalent of a Whole Foods or something, very, very difficult. And a lot of it's just been price. I mean, up until Say March or April of last year, all my products were you know eight to ten dollars for a full-size bar and Even though a lot of times the stores didn't really say it, the truth is they didn't want it because it was too expensive. they just wouldn't carry it. In fact, I met some people who are buyers at the Whole Foods in my town at an event earlier this year when we were still doing events, and I kind of told them like where things were going and said it'd be you know roughly this five dollar price point and stuff. And they're kinda of like, yeah, you know, we're kinda of looking for something maybe uh a little more local. That's about where we would go with price. Any higher than that, forget it. They just weren't even gonna consider. It. So I think losing out on those higher volume stores has been really crippling and really made it hard to grow the business. You know, the the goal going forward, part of the reason I have to make these prices lower is just to get those stores to even take a meeting with me. So um that's kind of what what the next year is going to be about. This past year, as I mentioned, I started bringing these prices down, like March, April. And then we've had this pandemic situation. So I really haven't done a lot of work on trying to get into stores in the past year because it was a combination of things. One, it just felt like everyone is in this kind of panic mode. Let's just survive. We're not trying to bring in new products. It just wasn't a good moment. It just wasn't a really a fruitful moment to try to make that ask. Um, I think now things are a little more stable. So it's going to be time to new year, new, you know, new opportunities, it's time to get back into that. But also people did buy a lot more stuff online this past year. And for a while, I was thinking, oh man, you know, I could just do this. This online thing is great. I just get the, you know, the full retail share and, you know, it's easy enough to ship this stuff out. That's kind of what I do. I have a production and warehouse facility. It's not a retail store. So it's really great for just shipping stuff out. But um, there was this initial wave when the the shutdowns kind of began in March and April. It was, you know, big, big boost on the web store, kind of, you know, levels I'd never seen before. And it it subsided. For a while I was thinking maybe I could just do online only. But then summer comes and you're dealing with warm weather and, you know, it's just there's so many things. You think Well, the truth is I need some stores and, and when people buy chocolate, most people, they don't really want to buy like 50 to to $100 worth of chocolate at a time. They pick up a bar here and there. They're at the grocery store. They get a bar or two. So you kind of need to be where they are. And that's where a lot of people are. So I think when I talk about trying to make the product more accessible, if I were to be online only, it would remove some of that accessibility. I need to be in some stores because that's where people tend to buy a chocolate. You know, if I'm not there, I'm not really accessible to them. So, you know, in the process is different for every store the bigger the store the more complicated it is the more layers there are um but you know it's it's kind of like you got to find a way in find a way to wiggle in i've got sort of a you know i I call i ask for you know the buyer's email you know there's this sort of thing i do and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but ultimately they have to decide okay is this price something's even possible for us let me get some samples there's usually back and forth it can take months you know, it's not easy. Trust me, it's it's not an easy process. So anything you can do to make it more likely, like having prices more reasonable, is, is really helpful, really important. So we'll see. It's a big question mark for me, but I definitely need some more stores.
0: Yeah, it's a balancing act.
1: That's right.
0: And speaking of the pandemic, though, I mean, how how has the ongoing pandemic changed WM Chocolate and changed maybe how you see the future, at least in the short term, the next couple of years?
1: I don't know that it's really changed it too much. I, you know, it's changed my life in some, I think, mostly helpful ways. It's been a really hard year for a lot of people. And, you know, I think I was lucky last year because, um, for one thing, it, it didn't end up harming the business all that much. And it also scared me enough that I I made some changes in my own life that I think are really for the better. You know, when this first started coming about, like, in February, March last year, we were getting this sense of, okay, something is, you know, <laughs> something's going on here. It's maybe a little more serious than we thought. And then all of a sudden, you remember that period where there was like, over the course of a week, it went from being, oh, maybe this coronavirus, eh, it's, you know, it's a little bit concerning, but it's probably overblown, to all of a sudden, all right, we're done. We're we're not going anywhere. You know, we're, this event's canceled, that event's canceled. You know, we're now leaving the house. Um I can remember going to this, like, ice cream pop-up. I had a friend of mine who was like, he, he does some ice cream pop-ups, and he uses some of the chocolate and some of the things, and it was like the last social event I went to, and I remember thinking like a week after, you know, that was probably just not a very good idea. It was just a sudden total change in mentality towards it, and, and so at that time, I thought, you know, I'm really, really in trouble with the business, because I rely on in-person events for certainly a portion of the sales. I also rely on specialty stores, the kind of stores that are going to be closed to do my sales when it's not me in person. And so I thought, oh, you know, I'm. Uh, this is just going to be an absolute disaster. I'm not going to sell hardly anything this year. And so uh, I started making some <laughs> adjustments in my own personal finances. I basically bought a bunch of stock when things really crashed. And that was really lucky. I'm not saying I was like, you know, really smart or something. I like panic. I did the opposite. Most people panic sell. I panic bought <laughs> a bunch of stuff. So I was able to uh through some, some some luck and just basically being really afraid that the business was going to fall apart I I thought I got to have some other things going on and that turned out to be extremely healthy because I started learning again started reading again I, I, instead of thinking you know I'm just in on the chocolate this is all I do I'm just obsessed with this I'm in this own little world I started to think this might not work out so let me let me Get curious again. Let me read books again. Let me try to figure out other things. And that's really what led to, like I mentioned before, changing the sourcing model, changing how the stuff's manufactured. That all came out of this kind of mental flexibility that I was forced into when I freaked out <laughs> because I thought the business was toast, you know? So, um, so that was really a, a kind of a difficult and painful, but, but fortunate thing to have happened last year. And I think as things have gone on, what ended up happening was that the business actually wasn't toast. There were some things that uh, you know we've we've seen with the pandemic. It's affected everyone very differently, and so there were things about having just a, a basically a pantry good. People were loading up on those items. So March, April, you know, sold a lot of stuff online. I didn't expect to sell, um, and then like around you know fall, going to the holidays, people ended up doing a lot more online chocolate tasting stuff. Like instead of having a corporate event where they go have dinner together, they would you know buy chocolate kits for me, and I would show up on a Zoom thing and take them to the bars and, you know, hang out and take questions and stuff. And so that ended up filling a lot of the gaps of some of those in-person events and missing out on some of those specialty store sales and stuff like that. But, you know, I think the the future is really, okay, this is a really different year. There are some things that reminded us that we can do, but we still have to be prepared for the fact that we are going to go back. Towards something that looks more like how it used to look. It might not be exactly the same, but it's going to be more similar than than not. And so, like, I don't think I I mentioned again before. Maybe I could just do it all online. Well, then I that's because for you know March and April, I was selling a lot of chocolate online. I'm like, wow, this is great. You know, if I could just keep doing this. But the thing is, realistically, I can't just keep doing that. So I have to think about how do I position myself so that. Um, You know, I'm more resilient when we're getting closer to back to normal. I need to be in more stores. If anything like this happens again, you know, I need to be in stores that are essential and not just kind of uh, places people go to buy gifts from time to time. You know, they're great stores, my specialty store partners. But when this happened, they really had to focus on their core offerings. So if you're cheese, you're focused on cheese. If you're butcher, you're focused on meat. If you're wine, you're focused on wine. And all those things that are around you, like out the checkout counter or bars of chocolate here on the shelf or whatever, that's the stuff that falls away. It's my stuff that falls away. So I need to be in a more diversified collection of settings. I think putting it all in one basket, you know, it's just, it's just not, um, it's not, it's not safe. So you got to be open for everything. But I think continuing to take advantage of the virtual opportunities is really important. Having the web store there is really important, but ultimately getting in more stores that have more traffic. Is still, it was what I needed to do two years ago, one year ago, and it remains the key thing to do this year and next year and beyond.
0: Those are all of my questions. Is there is there anything else you'd like to share that you feel like you haven't yet been able to or a topic you'd like to explore?
1: <laughs> it's another good question. You know, it's there's always just so much to say about chocolate, I think. We talked a lot about how for a lot of people it is just chocolate, but once you get under the hood, there's so many layers, so many facets. And I've had to really struggle with, you know, when I do uh, like a, an interview or uh, tasting with groups, when is it enough? You know, do you, when do you just sign off and say, okay, that's, that's good for today? So I think we've covered a lot of ground. I'm really appreciative of your time and your attention putting together these questions, Max. And I hope that people who listened and thought parts of it were interesting. I just, I, I really implore you, please keep exploring, keep looking, keep listening. You know, there's so much knowledge out there and we want to share it with you, whether it's me or other specialty chocolate makers, you know, we're all very, typically I find very willing to, to talk and kind of share our secrets and our perspectives. So, uh, you know, just just give us a chance to let you into our world a little bit and we'll try to do it, you know, in digestible chunks, maybe no more than an hour at a time so that you stay with us.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this extended interview from Chocolate on the Road. If you liked it, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. In fact, share it in any way you see fit. Your support makes all the effort put into each episode worth it. An especially huge thank you to Will for being in this episode. To learn more about WM Chocolate, check out the show notes for this episode at the link in the description or on my website at damecacao.com. That's D-A-M-E-C-A-C-A-O dot C-O-M. Have a wonderful day, and I hope you'll join me next time we go on the road.